Hello, oracles. So today we're going to have the very first official podcast. And I want to get into how we all become otherworldly, be it mystics or witches or pagans or just someone who considers himself a spiritual person outside of the normal realm of religion. So I want to give you a background to my story. First of all, you all know me as the Otherworldly Oracle, but my nickname is Kitty. And so I'd like to talk about how I came into being who I am today, specifically on a spiritual level. So I guess as a child, I always knew I was different. And if you talk to anyone in the witchy or pagan or mystical online community, you'll find that that's a common occurrence, that everyone felt sort of different as a child, right? Like they couldn't fit in in one way or another. At least most people will say that that is something that they felt um, as a child and as a teenager and maybe now even as an adult. But anywho, as a child, I knew I was different. I wasn't athletic. I tried very hard to be athletic, but was a little, I would say more clumsy and a little bit slower than the other kids. And at the same time, I wanted to be girly and play with dolls and Barbies and things, but I never really quite felt super feminine like some of the other girls around me who were into dancing and gymnastics, and they just seemed to radiate this, you know, girly feminine quality that I kind of always desired to have, but for whatever reason, I just felt different. And I didn't, I didn't embody any one of these specific qualities that were pushed on us back then, you know, as children, either you were athletic or you were girly, one or the other, particularly, you know, as a little girl, you were either a tomboy, you know, super athletic, or you were a little girl who was very feminine and, um, you know, fed into those gender roles, we'll say. So I didn't quite fit into either one of those, but you know, I, I had qualities of both, we'll say, but not yet either, if that makes sense. Along the lines of being different, I remember being very young and living a lot of my time with my grandparents. Um, they had a corner lot in a suburban neighborhood I say suburbs, but truly it's the country. Um, you know, we had Amish communities and farms where we lived and, uh, but yet it was still on the outskirts of a large metropolitan area. So still technically suburbs, but anywho, they had a large corner lot and they had a lot of land behind them where there was a lot of trees. The yard was very big, a lot of room for kids to play outside and really explore and enjoy being a kid back in the 80s and 90s. So I remember being little and really being drawn to plants and trees. I know a lot of mystical, magical people have been drawn to animals, and it's not that I don't love animals, I do, but I just remember specifically that I was drawn more instinctively to plants and trees. So, for instance, I thought back about this a few years ago. I started thinking about my childhood and, and I thought, 
there were times when I was a kid that I seemed to automatically know how to identify, a, excuse me, how to identify a plant or I already knew what the plant was and how to use it. I don't necessarily mean medicinally, but you know, I, I could tell if a plant was edible. I could tell, um, you know, if a, if a plant was something that could be used by, by me, you know, for whatever it is that I needed to do at the time. For instance, I remember pulling up wild uh, spring onion. My grandmother had them growing all over her yard. I don't know what happened there. I don't know if they just grew wild or, you know, maybe she planted some wild onion in her garden and then it kind of escaped <laughs> and seeded itself all over the yard. I don't know, but I just remember pulling up the wild onion and munching on, on the greens and just laying there and enjoying it, you know, laying in the grass and, and eating the wild onions. And then there was a honey, big honeysuckle bushes across the street that I would go over and pluck the flower off the bush and suck the juice out of the bottom. I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but um, it's a fun experience. In addition, my grandmother had wild mint that grew behind her house. I think I think she showed me what which plant was the mint and then she would have me go out and pluck some for her and she would add it to her sun tea in the summer. And then also... Well, I said earlier, I didn't know plants medicinally, but this is something that I did somehow. I just knew how to do, or perhaps my grandmother showed me. I just don't remember, but she had a large aloe vera plant growing in the front yard. And I remember falling off my bike and no one was around and I skinned my knee and I went over and, you know, pulled a piece of the aloe vera off and rubbed the gel, the aloe vera gel on my boo-boo, if you will. <laughs> So little things like that, I just kind of always been instinctively drawn to plants and trees as well. I think this is partially something that my grandparents instilled in me, which is sort of ironic because they're extremely Pentecostal Christian and um, are against anything that has to do with magic or new age or, you know, Basically, all of that is the devil to them. So it's just kind of funny, ironic that that they're the ones that instilled such a love of nature uh, in me at a, at a young age. And in addition, they took me camping all over the United States. I remember laying in the pop-up camper on one of the beds. And if you've ever seen a pop-out pop-up camper, the beds pop out from the sides. And then typically there are screens that you can unzip. And I remember, you know, unzipping the screens and just laying there and looking up into the trees and just, you know, that was my safe place, my sanctuary. And going through somewhat of a tumultuous childhood, I took sanctuary, I took retreat in nature, in Mother Earth. And some of my most favorite treasured memories were going out into the woods and playing on the pathways through the woods, you know, climbing over tree trunks that had fallen across creeks and skipping rocks and building tree forts and swinging from vines like a monkey. All those things were, were what took me out of the real realism, you know, the real uh, trouble of my home life 
as a child. Uh, that I, and that was something that I really, really needed. And Mother Earth was always there to comfort me and, you know, remove me from a bad situation, at least for a little while. In addition, I had a really wild imagination as a kid. I think that's kind of what has played into my ability um, for strong visualization as I've gotten older. I think if you nurture your imagination um, with books and music and art and you continue to do that throughout your life, that you'll, you'll have an easier time with visualization as, you're, as an adult and um, particularly when it comes to getting into your magical practice. Okay, so moving on, I, in addition to having a wild imagination as a child, I, I always had a really strong dream time. I, I dreamt a lot as a child. I remember having many very vivid, wild dreams. And sometimes I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would still see these visions or dreams, you know, in my waking life after I'd opened my eyes. Now, years later, I've realized that that probably has to do with the hypnagogic state and the fact that I get sleep paralysis quite often. Going back to the dreaming, though, I also, I remember probably around the age of nine or 10, I had my first flying dream in which a child in my dream taught me how to fly. And Again, as I got older, I realized that all these flying dreams that I was having were actually a part of me involuntarily astral traveling, you know, basically where your astral body leaves your physical and goes out at night and travels the, on the astral plane. So all of these things adding up together, you know, I never, at the time as a child, there was so much going on that I didn't you know, I didn't piece all these things together. They were just how my life was. And then at the age of 12 and probably into the age of 13, I started experimenting with the Ouija board. And yeah, um, so this is one of the reasons why I, I don't, you know, I kind of preach against it. And, you know, some people say they have a decent experience with it or, you know, there's certain safeguards or whatever to use with it. But for me, I had such a terrible experience with it that I choose not to use Ouija boards because of those experiences. And I just think that there's other ways to more safely contact the spirit world. But so anyway, that being said, it's all up to you if you want to use the Ouija or not. But, you know, I'm not going to do it with you. So, and the reason is, is because at the age of 12, my friends, two of my friends and I made a homemade Ouija board. We used, I think it was just like a random piece of cardboard that we pulled from a box and we used, you know, a Sharpie to write the letters and numbers, the hello, goodbye, that whole thing. And then we use like a small shot glass as the planchette. Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> so I just remember, you know, the first time thinking, okay, someone else is pushing it and maybe they were, but we only use the Ouija board. I want to say two or three times because each time we used it, it seemed to be the same presence that would come through. And it was a very ominous, evil feeling. It didn't, 
after the second session where, you know, we supposedly cleared the board by saying goodbye, you know, you're, that supposedly releases the spirit, or at least that's what you're, you know, you're taught or you read as a child. And anyway, the second session that we had, it was just, it, it seemed like the same exact spirit that we had been talking to the previous session. And we thought that was kind of strange. Cause like I said, we thought we had cleared out that spirit's presence, but it apparently was the same spirit. So we go on and we start asking it questions. You know, I think one of the questions was, how did you die? And he said something about an ax. And then he said that he died in the year 1908 or something along those lines. And following that, we asked his name and he pointed the planchette to the letter Z. <laughs> so, and then following that moment, I believe that we all started getting a little scared. It was just seeming the air was heavy. It just didn't feel right. And we wanted to let him go. So, but previous to letting him go, I think we asked a few more questions and each time he would just answer the question with the letter Z. The shot glass kept going back to the letter Z, 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 Z. Every time it would move, it would do like a little loop and go back to the letter Z. And again, we thought, okay, this is just weird and there's something like screwing with us, right? So we cleared out the board and we tried one last time and it was the same exact experience, the same exact spirit, and he wouldn't answer any question except for the planchette going to the letter Z. So we were so freaked out at this point and we knew that none of us were moving the shot glass on our, of our own accord um, being that a shot glass is somewhat heavy and, and we had our fingers very lightly on the planchette at this time, cause we were kind of looking around at each other going, you know, who's doing this, who's doing this. It's not funny anymore. That kind of thing. You know, the movies, <laughs> what the movies show kids doing with Ouija boards, the same type experience that definitely happened to me. And we decided to throw the Ouija board away to rip it up, you know, the actual cardboard piece and throw all of it away because we just didn't want to have any more, any more of it. It just freaked us out that badly. So following that, <clears throat> this is, and it was probably a bad decision on my part to use a Ouija board in a home that I already knew was haunted. <laughs> I've lived in many houses growing up. We, I have moved quite a bit and I've lived in very many places, but I just remember this house being terrifying. I, I don't know from the moment we moved in, you know, the basement had something in it. I knew there was a presence down there. I hated going down there to do laundry or to get like, we kept our canned foods and things down there. And there was other just experiences prior to the Ouija board session that were just creepy, you know, never really truly outright paranormal, like poltergeist activity or, or anything like that. It was just more or less a feeling that you got that someone was watching, someone was there, that something might grab you if you go down to the basement by yourself for too long, you know, those kinds of weird, just creepy feelings, you know, you never felt settled. And the house was old. It was probably at least a hundred years old and it's in an area of historic Maryland, Southern Maryland, where there has been a lot of, um, trauma, war, you know, 
between the natives, you know, and then also there's revolutionary and civil war history, probably war, other wars, you know, throughout American history. So there's a lot of spiritual presence in this area in, in the state of Maryland where I grew up. And it's just, I think it was just a bad idea to use the Ouija board in a house. A, to use it without knowing what the hell I was doing. B, not, you know, not being, not knowing to set up any spiritual guards, any magical protection of any kind. And then, you know, doing it in a place that I knew was haunted, that I didn't, I already didn't feel comfortable in, but yet I just went ahead and, you know, plunged forward with it. So anyway, following that, coffee break, sorry, following that experience, things in the house only amplified. They, the paranormal feelings and the activity only increased. I was terrified to go anywhere in that house or be alone. I just always felt like, again, that there was something there watching me, but that feeling became more intensified. And my brother, actually, my younger brother, uh, had an experience there too, which still like shakes me to my core when he talks about it to this day. And, you know, at the time, I think I blew him off because I didn't want to acknowledge the fact that perhaps I had triggered something in the house. Perhaps our Ouija board session had brought something else into the house or, you know, triggered it basically, gave it more fuel. But yeah, so following that experience, moving out of that house and moving into the age of 14, I uh, found the religion of Wicca. Wicca was, I would say the first like modern pagan slash witchcraft movement that really has been one of the foundations of what we call magical, the magical practices of today you know, one of the foundations, not the only foundation, but but surely one of the, the pillars of, of it. And so when I was 14, I found Wicca, I believe one of my family members gave me a book or perhaps I found it in a thrift store. My uh, details on that are a little muddy, but I just remember being like, wow, this is, this is so cool. There's a, a feminine aspect to this. It's not just about God. It's, there's a, a female goddess and a God you know, they, that work cohesively. There's more freedom with this religion to explore myself spiritually, to acknowledge nature. And again, you know, nature has always been a big part of my life. It's always been a constant comfort of mine. So to see that there was a religion that honored nature and like put it at the forefront in such a way was really just thrilling to me. So I knew that this was the thing for me and that I needed to learn everything I possibly could about it, which at the time we had computers, we had the internet, but it was like, you know, dial up speed type deal. And it was just, it was kind of brand new at this time. This was like the early 2000s, <clears throat> excuse me, late nineties, early 2000s. So there wasn't a whole lot of information online. And to be honest with you, I didn't even think to look online for the information at this point in my life. I did a lot of, you know, going to libraries and looking for books, which most libraries at that time, especially where I grew up, they didn't have the information that I wanted because I grew up in, like I said, in a, a suburban kind of rural 
area of historic Maryland where most people are either Pentecostal or Baptist. So Wicca would be the devil, you know what I'm saying? That's just not, you don't, there would be nothing like that on a library bookshelf. So, but anyway, I would look at mythology, I would look at anything to do with nature type books from the library, and then I would also, if I ever got the chance to go to the bookstore, and if I had money, I would pick up books for myself from uh, the bookstore Borders. Uh, that was the bookstore that, the chain bookstore that we had in that area at the time. So anyway, I tried to get my hands on anything I could find with information, but it just ended up being like I had a few books. It was like Silver Ravenwolf, Lori Cabot, Scott Cunningham, those big kind of old school names. I read all those books that I could find and I realized that the most important part of it to me was just to get outside and experience nature, just be in nature. That was always what it was about to me. But I do remember my first ritual was a drawing down the moon ritual, which is sort of like where you're invoking the goddess or you're, you're pulling the moon, the moon goddess energy into yourself. And I just remember standing under the full moon and it was kind of chilly that night and it was very dark, uh, you know, minus the light from the moon and just being just being myself, just, just being there in that moment and feeling really connected. So if I wasn't hooked already to this Wiccan movement, then I was extremely hooked after that. I ended up doing spells that went wrong. <laughs> um, I remember telling one of my really good friends in high school that, you know, that I was getting into Wicca and that I was into all the, these magical things and, you know, into the goddess and, and, and magic. And, and I, I'm fairly sure this friend of mine spilled, spilled the beans to someone else. And then it kind of flew around the school that I was a witch and people called me names. Um, there was a boy that in English class that made a big spectacle of not wanting to sit beside me anymore because he thought that I was going to turn him into a frog and everybody laughed. I mean, on and on, I could go on and on about it, but that was kind of my high school experience throughout. And, you know, I'm sure everyone out there who's listening has, has their own stories like this, especially if you came to Wicca or witchcraft or the new age or magical, mystical, any kind of, you know, alternative spiritual movement. I'm sure you all have your own stories about this. Um, especially, like I said, if, if you've been in it for a while, then you've, you've seen how much this community, this movement, this philosophy, this practice has changed over time. And especially today, there's so many people coming to it. I mean, every single day I have people saying, I'm brand new to this. You know, I'm really drawn to it. How have I not known about this before? There's people that are, you know, in their older teenage years up through into their 70s that are coming to a more mystical approach at their spiritual practice. And I think that's amazing. And everyone, you're going to have your own stories, whether you started years ago or you just started, you're going to have these stories for yourself. But um, I guess my point is, you know, I, I've been this way my entire life since I was a child. I've been drawn to uh, mysticism and magic and a more pagan outlook on religion since I was very young. And 
for many years, I tried to deny that aspect of myself. Um, you know, I went through many phases where I was all in and I would study, 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 and I would practice kind of in private so that no one knew that I was into magic, that I did, I did magic, that I believed in different gods. And then other times I would tell myself, well, this isn't the mainstream. This isn't what, you know, most people want of me or expect of me. Why can't I just be normal? And I would try so hard to be normal, to believe in whatever one else believed in, to follow those core, you know, beliefs. And I just could never, I could never fight who I truly am. And or, well, I tried to fight it, let's say that I tried, but I could, it never truly went away. It was always there inside of me. And I hit a certain age and, well, I turned 30 basically a few years ago. I'm not going to say how many years, but I turned 30 and I was just like, you know what? I'm tired of trying to conform and mold myself to everyone else's expectations, to everyone else's what they want to see of me or you know, what I think is going to make everybody else around me happy. I need to live for my own happiness. Otherwise, I'm just a fraud anyway. So I ended up making big changes in my life. I started taking care of myself physically and spiritually. And I just started saying, you know what? Fuck it. If people don't like me for who I am, then they never loved me or they never truly liked me to begin with. And I don't want to be around those people anyway. And come to find out now that I'm more open and, I, and I've and i owned my, my own belief system, I own my own, you know, personal values and beliefs and spiritual practice that most people that I thought, well, not let's not say most, but a lot of the people that I was scared would find out actually are very incredibly supportive and some are even interested in it. <laughs> So it's just kind of funny, you know, always be yourself. And I also encourage everyone to encourage your children to be themselves too. I don't force anything on my kids when it comes to spirituality or religion. I try to expose them to many different belief systems and basically just instill in them good human values, good, good morals, you know, to what's right and what's wrong and how to treat other people. Um, and I think that's universal. It doesn't really matter what religion you're raised in. If you're a good person, you're a good person. That's that, you know. And so, yeah, I'm not trying to push any of that on my children. But, you know, I hope they find their, their own thing as they get older. They find their own way. And I am honestly, truly thankful for the path that I've had. And I, I wouldn't change any of it because it's made me who I am today. I, I'm happy for the challenges that I had in life because without challenge, you never truly can appreciate achievement. And, you know, without the dark times, you can't really just soak up the light. So that's going to be the end of our very first episode of the Otherworldly Oracle official podcast. I hope you all enjoyed and please join us for more fun. I'm going to be bringing on people to interview. I'm going to be bringing on paranormal investigators and herbalists and all kinds of awesome, magical, mystical people. So stay tuned.